you would open up your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. There's a Bible in front of you, and uh, I believe that should be on page 561. But if you would open up your copy of God's Word, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I say, it matters if it's according to God's Word. For that is what preaching is. Preaching is when God's ambassadors deliver God's message in God's way to God's people. It is not our own message. It is not our own TED Talk. It is God's message. And even the ambassador himself sits under that very message. And let me tell you, this one this morning is one we all need. This one is... One of those texts where maybe if you've read through the Bible, you did not find much here. But if you take time, you will see that there is much gold here that could last many, many weeks. We're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, all the way through chapter 2, verse 11. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, in this place are bruised reeds and others who have bruised the reeds. And we all stand in need of this text. Lord Jesus, you pray that we would be sanctified by the truth, your word being the truth. There's some of us in here who have no spiritual life, and we need to be spiritually resurrected. There are others who are born again, but they feel like they have no spiritual life. Then there are those who have been born again, and they know they're walking with you, but yet they still need this text. So, Father, send your Holy Spirit 
He may work this text in our hearts, that he might grant us that, that sharp focus upon the truth, the faith to believe what's written here, and a love for you that overflows with love for others. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. When Robert Downey Jr. was struggling with substance abuse, it was Mel Gibson who poured into him. It was Gibson who even helped Downey land a role and to continue work in acting. Robert Downey Jr. said, I couldn't get hired and he, talking about Gibson, he cast me. He said if I accepted responsibility, he called it hugging the cactus. He said if I accepted responsibility long enough, my life would take meaning. And if he helped me, I would help the next guy. Little did Mel Gibson know that he would be the next guy. Gibson had gotten himself, as one article puts it, he had gotten himself in the doghouse with Hollywood because of his angry outbursts, his anti-Semitic remarks, racial slurs, and even drunk driving arrests. But it was in 2011 when Robert Downey Jr. was at an award show that Mel Gibson had been the presenter of the award. And during his acceptance speech, Robert Downey Jr. asked Hollywood to show the same mercy towards Gibson that they had shown towards him years earlier. That's an awesome story, isn't it? It's one of those that makes you say, I have hope for humanity. If that's such an awesome story, then why didn't we not see it more often? This, this is one of those stories that it, it grips us because we know our need of forgiveness. But far too little do we actually show it. In my opinion, I think the message of forgiveness, especially the gospel message of forgiveness, is the most relevant and also countercultural message today. It is something that we so rarely see, and unfortunately, sometimes we rarely see it in churches. But it's the message of the gospel of grace, this gracious forgiveness that we all know we desperately need. And that's why we either try to work hard enough to earn it, or we do all we can to run away from it. See, the problem in Corinth was this. There was a guy who, he had really messed up. I mean, he had really blown it. And he had gone through church discipline, and now they're at the situation where Paul's trying to say, how do we move forward with this guy? What does it look like to love someone who sinned so badly? And that's what Paul's going to answer in this text. What I think we see here overall is the theme of this. We've been asking the question a lot, what is true gospel ministry? That's what the book of, or really the letter of 2 Corinthians is all about. Here's what we see. True gospel ministry loves people well. True gospel ministry loves people well. In particular, we see here in chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, true gospel ministry loves people well, even through gracious church discipline. Look back at chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. For if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it, not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment, talking about the church discipline, this punishment by the majority is enough. 
What we need to understand is that in true gospel ministry, we seek to love people well. We seek to love people the way Christ loves them, and that involves church discipline. But in order to understand what church discipline is, we need to actually think about what church discipline is not. Church discipline is not punishment. Now, that might take you off, take you off guard for a second because the English translation there says punishment. So, pastor, what in the world do you mean? Well, in the Greek, this word that's translated punishment, it more accurately means censure. It means a formal act of rebuke. When we think about punishment today, we typically think about it as being harsh or raking someone over the coals. That is not what the Bible means by church discipline. Even when the law is proclaimed, even when sins are exposed and there is conviction, it's for a purpose. It's not just to punish someone just to punish someone. It's not raking someone over the coals. It's not just trying to humiliate someone. It's also not this. Church discipline is not penance. Penance is not repentance. Penance is a Roman Catholic doctrine saying this, that you will receive forgiveness if you go and do A, B, and C. So when you go and do A, B, and C, then come back to us and we'll talk. That is not church discipline. You cannot earn forgiveness. It is received. So that is what church discipline is not. It is not punishment, nor is it penance. What is church discipline? Well, church discipline is Christ's love through his ordained officers in his church. Were they, the officers, were they, they strive with all their might to bring straying sheep back into the fold. The officers of the church, particularly the elders, are known as shepherds. Shepherds shepherd the sheep. And sheep, because we have a phenomenal tendency to run away, so shepherds run after the sheep. And shepherds, the elders in particular, are called at times to go take someone through more formal church discipline for the goal of bringing them back in. It's not, it's not raking them over the coals. Look at verse 5. You can see this. We see that church discipline is not trigger happy, but it causes actually grief for all those involved. Paul says, now if anyone has caused pain, that word could also be translated grief. Paul's saying that what happens is the church leadership, they don't stand back very austere and say, you sinned, now be better. We know nothing of your lowly estate. No. Rather, it, it, when that happens, it, actually a godly church officer will be grieved by their sin because they love them. In verse 6, we see that church discipline is it's not ordered by one person, but rather a majority. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. In our particular church government, the Presbyterian Church, this happens with the plurality of elders. Now, don't worry, I'm going to show you how this all ties in. In other words, we can't just say, well, Wilson says so-and-so needs to be 
you need to go through church discipline. That's not the way our church government works. I'm not the pope of this church. This is not Wilson Presbyterian Church. Christ is the Lord of the church. The elders are not making it their church. They're trying to serve Christ as Christ has his expression of the local bride or his expression of the bride in the local church here in Stillwater. And it is as the majority of the elders, as they seek to love people well, they don't seek their own individual opinion. They seek the group. Verse 7, we also see this. Church discipline always keeps restoration in view. To read the whole sentence there, for such a one... This punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. In other words, Paul's saying this. When someone has to go through church discipline, it has a goal in mind. It has an end in mind. It's not just to keep someone under the weight of the law. It's to bring them back. It's to show them Christ. It's to show them the freedom that they have in him. In other words... Whenever someone has to go through church discipline, it is not discipline for discipline's sake. It's for the purpose of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. That's very, very key. Now, how does this happen? Well, church discipline is actually given in a way, it's given in two different words. There's the word of the law, and there's the word of the gospel. The word of the law reveals who God is and it shows our sin. And it shows where we've rebelled. It shows how we've gone astray. And the law is revealed saying this is what sin is. And there are the times we need to hear that. But is that the only message we need to hear? No. There's also the word of the gospel. Now there is no good news unless there's bad news. So you need law and gospel, but you cannot only have law. You have to have the gospel of grace. Amen? Oh, my goodness. I was just doing a youth retreat for the Presbytery. I taught them the very, I said, my name is Wilson Van Hooser. When I, when I say amen, I want you to say amen. I mean, it was right from there. Guys, you need the gospel of grace. Amen? amen. Come on. There we go. I know we're Presbyterian. This is what John Newton says. The sense of the evil of sin is given to bring us to Christ, not to discourage us to come to Christ. The reason why we proclaim the law, and it's not very comfortable, we proclaim the law so that someone would realize, I am sick, I need a doctor. Death is, is where I'm at. I need life. And then we bring in the gospel of grace saying, here's what all you have in Christ. That's what church discipline's for. It's moving someone into the gospel of grace. It's never either or. But one of the things we do need to realize today is that in the doctrine of church discipline is this. Church discipline is actually always happening. It's happening to you right now. The way the Bible talks about church discipline, and I love Eddie pointed this out in Sunday school earlier, and it was great. Discipline is for the sake of discipleship. It comes from the same root word. 
discipline in the church is happening all the time. It's happening right now. It was happening when you confessed your sins. And you received the assurance of pardon and the assurance of Christ's righteousness. It's happening now as the word's being preached in law and gospel. The word is going to be rebuking us, and then it will comfort us. It will correct us, and then it will encourage us. Church discipline is happening all the time. There's a scale, as it were, of church discipline. Church discipline happens whenever there's preaching, whenever there's even just simple pastoral visitation, whenever we're just one-anothering in biblical counseling, in Sunday school, in men's and women's study, in the Lord's Supper. Church discipline is happening all the time. It's not merely just the bad news bears church discipline. It's the wrong way to look at it. I like to picture it this way. Uh, one of the things that I, that I tell people about, one of the massive changes of going from, from high school athletics to college athletics, and even from there to professional, is, is the amount of focus there is on rehabilitation, physical therapy. Now, in high school, you merely thought you needed rehab, that you needed physical therapy, just when you had a bad injury. But rather, as you, came, as you went up in these levels, you realized you didn't just need rehab, you needed prehab. Matter of fact, uh, sometimes there would be uh, football teams where they would have practice for about two hours, but you knew if it was going to be a two-hour practice that it was really going to be four hours. Because there would be an hour beforehand to warm up and get ready and to, to roll out the knots that are in your legs from the day before, to loosen up. And as you did that, the goal was so that you might not have a really bad injury to end up in rehab. You see what I'm saying? There's prehab and there's rehab. For church discipline, the reason why we want to stay committed to the church in its corporate worship and even things such as like the midweek study in Sunday school when the community of believers... Is because that is often the prehab that the Lord uses to keep us from rehab. Does that make sense? Oftentimes, the Lord is using these smaller moments to keep us from living out sin. It can happen, let's say this. Let's say I, I'm talking with Roger, and as I'm talking with Roger, I'm telling him, here's something that I'm struggling with. And as Roger gives me advice, as he counsels me, it is going to help me fight against sin. Now, there are times I can still ignore Roger. Isn't that true? He can still ignore you. And if I do, then, it, then I keep living in that sin, and then it could all blow up where then I really need formal church discipline. But the idea is that I would be listening to Roger, and I'd be talking with him, and that as I hear from him, as he applies the gospel of grace to me, that the Lord uses that to keep me from really messing up later. Does that make sense? Here's who this speaks to. There are believers who have severely erred in their sin. What you need to remember about church, about church discipline is this. It is not punishment or penance. But church discipline is for the sake of really the officers assisting you in the confession of your sins and the repentance unto life. Church discipline is for the sake of helping you rebuild your life to be orbited around Christ. It's to help show you the depths of the forgiveness of sins and the sufficiency of Christ even for you in that worst moment. The church discipline is for you to see 
that your brothers and sisters care for you. They care for your soul. And they care for you in light of judgment day. But church discipline also speaks to believers who might be more ignorant of how Christ cares for his people. For those of us who are ignorant of how Christ cares for his people, what we need to see is the necessity of this for the Christian life. This is not for bad Christians or B-team Christians. We all need church discipline, and, and sometimes in its full scale. But we all need it because all of us have a sinful heart, and were it not for God's mercy, think about this, were it not for God's mercy, who would be stopping one of us from being the next Hitler? It is only by his grace. And for the believer, we need to know that in all these means of grace in the church, we need this discipline so that we might follow God's ways. That's what true gospel ministry does. It loves people well, even through church discipline. But true gospel ministry also loves people well at times by graciously sparing them. You see that in chapter 1, verse 23. But I call God to witness against me, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Paul's situation with the Corinthians is that in light of this church discipline situation, it, it, was, it was a tense and rocky relationship. And actually, out of mercy, Paul decided, let me not come to you right now. Now that might take us, as, take us by surprise. What Paul is not saying is this. He's not saying that he was afraid to confront them. He's also not saying this. He's not failing to take their sin seriously. But Paul sees the situation and he decides that actually what is most wise in this moment is if I graciously spare you. And I think that's how we can see love. Love is seen when at times we wisely spare people. That means this. That means you have to know where the person's at. And you need to know them. You need to know actually how the heart works. And you need to know that though we all have the same sinful heart, it works itself out in different ways. It means we have to keep the greater goal of restoration in mind. It also means we have to be selfless at times and not make the process actually all about us. And it certainly means that if we're going to know when we need to spare people, it means we must pray and we must be rooted in Scripture. Here's why I think this speaks to us today. is because there are believers who are maybe young or young in the faith, and you really are, you, you, you care for people. And you want to help them, but you're not always the most wise in how you do it. And one of the things when we find ourselves in that situation, for me included, we need to learn from older Christians who have learned the art of what people need. We need to learn who our people are and who we're dealing with, what they need at that particular moment. And that means this, not everyone needs what I need in that particular moment, right? Notice how Jesus approached Mary and Martha differently when Lazarus was dead. Because he knew them individually. Well, we need to 
grow in is to patiently get to know people and, and think what's best for them in this moment. But it also speaks to believers who can be very heavy on law. But there are some of us who we just, we just want to see the law just trample people. We just want to see the law beat people up. And we just want to see people live in conviction because if anyone is a mature Christian, it's the person who's always walking around just beating themselves up. But listen to what John Calvin says. You know, he's all right. Listen to this. For there are many noisy scolders who display an amazing zeal in denouncing and raging against other people's faults and yet are untouched in their own hearts so that they may seem to take pleasure in exercising their throat and their lungs. In other words, just vehemently renouncing sin. But it belongs to a godly pastor, listen to this, to weep within himself before he makes others weep, to suffer in his own secret heart before he gives any open sign of his wrath, and to keep to himself more grief than he causes to others. That is a good word for us. This means that if we're going to be able to know when and how to do this, we must keep our eyes on Christ. Did you notice that Jesus did not treat his disciples like they were just cookie-cutter disciples? One disciple needed this, the other one needed this. It's all the same truth. But then there's the wisdom of truth applied. Let's just take the, the rehab prehab example. There are people who, they might have a pulled hamstring. And sometimes that pulled hamstring can be more severe or less severe. And then sometimes it can be maybe the same grade of a hamstring pull. But for whatever reason, there can just be a different way how some people can heal faster than others. The body's crazy. Spiritually, what this means is we need to keep our eyes on Christ and to think, what does this person need from Jesus and how can I love them in that way? That also means this. Sometimes we might receive a different prescription if I can use John, I just feel like I use Jonathan all the time. I'm going to use Jonathan. Uh, he's writing his notes, so I can, I can, I can do that. Um, maybe Jonathan and I sin the same way. But based on where our hearts are, he might need one thing and I might need another. He might actually be so broken over his sin where he needs to be built up and assured in the knowledge of Christ's forgiveness. I might still be so hard-hearted where I need the law. That's hard. But it means we must know each other. We must love each other. But we also must know the gospel. And that's what true gospel ministry does. As we keep our eyes on Jesus, we, we, we pray and we ask, when should we spare someone when, they're, when it's needed? Here's also what true gospel ministry does. True gospel ministry loves people well. And here's Paul's big point. Through gracious forgiving. Look at chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. 
Indeed, I, I have forgiven. If I've forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. True gospel ministry loves people well through gracious forgiveness. Amen? Yeah, I'll let you slide. Chrysostom, the church father, said this. Nothing makes us so godlike as in our willingness to forgive. Did you hear that? Nothing makes us so godlike as in our willingness to forgive. That word to forgive is mentioned four times in these verses, which means that whenever you see a word repeated you know, three times or more in a short section, it's, it's, a, it's a big theme. Paul is really zooming in on forgiveness here. And this particular word for forgiveness is actually different than other words for forgiveness. I actually did not realize this until this week. This word of forgiveness particularly means this. Not merely to, to take away someone's sin and cancel their debt. Not merely that, but also to positively, I love this, to look upon this person as if he were charming. <laughs> now that sounds wild. I, I, I was preaching at a church several months ago, and I used the word wild when I was talking about the gospel. And I had a guy come up to me later who said, don't use that word. And honestly, I was thinking, I don't know what, how else to describe this. This, someone as grievous as a sinner? And who knows exactly this person? Some people think it's, it's the man in 1 Corinthians who actually was shacking up with his mother-in-law. Okay? Now, if it's a real bad sinner for the Corinthians, and Paul says this, Paul says don't just forgive the person, but positively move forward with them. That's scandalous. This is the stuff you can't make movies about. This means to forgive, it means to give favor freely. It means unearned. It means despite someone's resume. It's to show someone favor without expectation of it coming back to you. It's just forgiving them for their own sake. It doesn't mean to treat them like a B-team Christian. It means not merely to pardon, but to positively show favor. It means to treat this man, listen to this, to treat this man the way God sees him as he is in Christ. Now how about that? Now I didn't tell you a lie, but I intentionally tried to shock you earlier because of what the potential situation could be. Because here's the thing, we often don't want to think about ourselves as that bad of sinners. And the reality is, we are. And we all wear masks as we come into this building. And we want people to think about us in light of our job success. In light of how we're the funny person, or we're the smart person, or we're the athletic person, or we're the good parent, or we're the good spouse. Or, I'm not, but we're, we're a great golfer. I'm not. 
It's an eyesore when you watch me. But my friends, Christ sees straight through it. He sees you the way you don't want to see yourself. And he says that it's sin. And he says that it's worth hell. He says that it's worth his wrath. And he forgives you. Amen? He doesn't water down the law. He doesn't say, well, it's just really not that, ba- not that big of a deal. Y'all just get over it. No one has a higher standard of the law than Jesus Christ. And he forgives. That's what Paul's saying here. He says to comfort this guy. I love this. This word means to encourage, to cheer someone on. It's actually this picture Uh, sometimes what would happen in the weight room whenever there would be like a bench press max day and it was always really fun because whenever someone was doing their max one rep of of bench press all your teammates would surround you and they would be cheering you on and you know you'd have this big adrenaline rush and you just you know guys would go you know it was awesome you're you're fueled with that adrenaline when Paul says to comfort this person it's not saying All right, now, you better be better. It is applauding the person, saying, look at how God is at work in your life. We're here with you. We're in it with you. We're moving forward with you. That's what it means. I love what one person says. Encouragement is like an EpiPen, and it can revive you at your worst moment. And one of the ways in which we can encourage people is to show them where the gospel of grace is true for them in that moment where they think it could not possibly be true. When Paul says for them to comfort this man, he uses a a tense in the Greek which means this, almost as if this, if this guy were to report back to me telling me how things are going, I want that to be the summary of his response. They've they've been comforting me. Paul also says that they're to protect him from being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That word for overwhelm literally means to be swallowed up. In other words, the case for this guy may have gotten so severe that it could have led him to possibly abandon the faith were they not to comfort him and forgive him. We've been looking at this on Thursday nights, and we talked about this one season of life where you can really suffer spiritually, and this is that sense whenever you have a great realization of your own sin and guilt. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, that is one of the most painful experiences on earth, is whenever you see actually your true sin and your true guilt, which is really just the tip of the iceberg. And there are the times like this man where certainly he was feeling it and it is an inner turmoil. And Paul is saying, if you don't move in to love this guy and forgive this guy, then he could be overwhelmed with sorrow. I like to think of this, it's not like a tornado that, you know, it it, it brings you in and then it spits you back out. It's more like a whirlpool. 
a whirlpool brings you in, but then it, it drowns you down in the bottom. And that's what this particular guilt can feel like. I love what one person says. It is no less of a scandal to cut off a repentant sinner from all hope of re-entry into the comfort and security of the fellowship of the redeemed community than it is to permit flagrant wickedness to continue unpunished in the body of Christ. In other words, it is not just foolish, but it's sinful whenever we see repentant people and we say, not yet. We should be a church, if we're truly for the gospel of grace, that when we seek someone confess, we should celebrate that. Because when you bring darkness into the light, God is at work. Amen? And the, when, when that happens, you're able to then say, let's run to Jesus and we're going to help you to repent. And there might be some things that we, have to, that we might have to go through and we might have to uncover. But nevertheless, we're with you the whole way because Christ is always with you. Amen? Do you know what happens? When the church sees that happen, more people do it. And then you realize the reality, you're not alone. Because here's the thing, you're not. <laughs> Once again, this is where this type, this is where we go. Because we are that type of people. Paul also tells them to reaffirm their love for him. That word for reaffirm is so fascinating. It actually means to rule. It means to rule judiciously, to make a formal decision that will rule the day. It's actually the same word where we get uh, the word for Lord in Greek. In other words, Paul's saying, let your love lord over this guy. Isn't that awesome? Isn't the Bible awesome? In other words, I probably just made that a whole lot louder, I'm sorry. When Paul says to love this person, he means... That going into the future, let your good will be upon him. Let your benevolence be upon him. Let the same love that the Father has for the Son, may that be upon him. I love what another church father, Tertullian, said. He said that there was one thing that, if, if there was one thing that converted him to Christianity, it was not the arguments that people gave him. Rather, it was... What he said here, they demonstrated something I didn't have. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way they loved each other. Have you ever been to a wedding wherever you see a dad who doesn't dance at all? And then he dances with his daughter. You ever seen that? That might be me in however many years. Uh, hopefully way, way, way down the road. I'm... I, I, I don't dance. I hate to break it to you. I don't. But man, when my daughter gets married, I might have to dance. Why? Love. And because of that love that so zones in on that person, it's almost as if it's tunnel vision on that person, and it just forgets everything else. And sometimes when you love someone in that way, it makes you kind of look foolish to other people. And that's the type of love that Paul's talking about here. The way in which you're going to love this repentant man is going to be a way in which people outside the church might say, yeah, that shouldn't happen. That's a scandal. That person should not be in your home. That person should not come through the doors of your church. 
Because that's the love that Jesus loves us with. Is that not amazing? Paul is saying there is this authoritative forgiveness that he has given this man. And he is pleading with him, forgive him, reconcile with him, bring him back in, let him know that the love of Christ is upon him. And he says all this, verse 11, for the purpose of this, that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Isn't that interesting? Paul is actually saying one of the ways in which we fight the spiritual warfare is by forgiving each other. Now, it's also really fascinating in the book of Ephesians where it talks about the armor of God, spiritual warfare. It's in the same letter where Paul will say, forgive one another. You see actually what's happening. The failure to forgive someone invites Satan in to do his work. Satan would love to have someone be separated from the word. Satan would love this man in particular just to focus on his own fallen emotions. He would love to isolate this man from the church. That's what he would love to do with you and me. Paul is saying, move toward this man to outwit Satan. Because as you proclaim the gospel of grace to him, Satan despises that because it beats back his kingdom. This is a stunning text, and I think it's one that we could just really keep going into for week upon week upon week, but we won't, don't worry. But certainly it should be something that should never get boring. Because this is the forgiveness that Christ has forgiven us with. Do you know that Jesus does not merely tolerate you? He freely bestows favor on you. When Jesus forgives you, he doesn't bring you back to square one and then say, all right, second chance, good luck. He does not do that. The Christian life is not about second chances. It's about Christ's righteousness given to you. Because no matter how many chances you you had, you would never earn it. The forgiveness that is in Christ is that he cancels your sin and he clothes you with his righteousness and he moves forward with you telling you, Forget the past, focus on what's ahead, amen? Oh, come on now. Here's one thing we must remember. The Father, in all of His holiness, He looked upon His Son, and after pouring out His holy wrath upon Him, He looked at that and He said, I'm happy with that. That's enough for sinful people. Is that not amazing? That's why we forgive. Because we're looking at someone else and we are saying, Jesus is enough for that person. And matter of fact, it is actually, one of these quotes in here, we'll show you if it's from Heath Lambert. It's actually as people know the forgiving love of God that it is a power for them to repent. It is not constantly looking at them. I'm going to use Jonathan again saying, now Jonathan, you better be a good boy from here on out. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. That's not the gospel. But I love what C.S. Lewis says. We all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. 
But this is precisely what we're called to practice. My friends, there are people in this church who desperately need us to reassure them that they are forgiven. And you might be surprised at who they are. There are leaders in this church who need to tell their people, you in Christ are forgiven. There are believers in here who are just so heavy on the law and you need to repent and realize the gospel is God's power to save. Love this story, very ironic. One man told John Wesley, he said, I never forgive and I never forget. John Wesley replied, then sir, I hope you never sin. Martin Luther said, all true repentance begins with the knowledge of the forgiving love of God. Isn't this good news? God, I'm I'm pumped up by you right now. Because it really is amazing. To think that we can have such forgiveness in Christ of all of our sins. Reminds me of Nelson Mandela who was in prison for 27 years. Think of South Africa. And when he was finally released, he said, I felt even at the age of 71, think about that. I felt that even at the age of 71 that my life was beginning anew. That, my friends, is what forgiveness feels like. Some of you have experienced that. And some of you need to come back to it again. And you have that when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's all it takes. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask in your mercy, oh, that you would help us to cling to Christ and his forgiveness and the hope and the reconciliation that we have in him. Father, may this cause us to sing. May it cause us to go forth and and just overflow with forgiveness for others. Most importantly, may it help us glorify Christ. He is the one who has forgiven such scandalous sinners. So, Lord, bless your word and the preaching of it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.